Tonight on Farage, we talk about the move towards a two-tier society, the jabbed and the unjabbed. Something very sinister is going on. The Chancellor is going to spend £5.9 billion and that somehow, miraculously, is going to eradicate a waiting list for the NHS of £5.7 million. Is it really going to make that much difference? And joining me on Talking Pints tonight, veteran Conservative MP Sir John Redwood. Are we heading for a two-tier society? What I'm now going to call the jabbed and the jab-nots. Well, let's have a listen to New Zealand Premier Jacinda Redern, who said this earlier on today. So you basically said this is going to be like, well, it's almost like, you probably don't see it like this, the two different classes of people. If you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated, you have all these rights. If you are vaccinated... That is what it is. So, yep, yep. People who have been vaccinated will want to know that they're around other vaccinated people. Uh, they'll want to know that they're in a safe environment. It is a way that we can give confidence to those who are going back into hospitality or events. Uh, and so that is something that I think we should offer to people who have been vaccinated, that confidence that we're doing everything we can to keep them safe and that they can come back out and start enjoying those things safely. Well, isn't that extraordinary? There she is, the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, confirming in response to a journalist's question that, yes, there will be two different classes of people in New Zealand society, the jabbed and the jab nuts. And what I thought was even more sinister was that she said that people who had been jabbed wouldn't want to mix and spend time with those that hadn't been jabbed. It's almost as if the unjabbed in New Zealand will become the modern-day lepers, but it doesn't stop, of course, with New Zealand. In Austria, the new Prime Minister is seriously considering locking down the unjabbed if case numbers get worse. So if you're jabbed, you can go about your business and go to work. If you're unjabbed, you will have to stay at home. And if you're caught leaving your home, you will be fined. Now, of course, in Scotland, they've gone some way towards this already with the introduction of a vaccine passport scheme. And last weekend was the first time it was fully used for the nighttime industry, and it's been described as an unmitigated disaster, uh, with footfall down 40% to nighttime venues and lots and lots of aggro on the doors. And overnight, we hear the Labour Party now coming out unequivocally, John Ashworth saying that we must back Plan B. And of course, Plan B includes vaccine passports. We're very much on the same theme. The Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, now says he is leaning towards compulsory NHS jabs. So if you haven't had a jab, you don't have a job. Already, uh, this has been put in place for the care industry. Now, I'm not talking just about the NHS in isolation. I'm talking about a much bigger and broader point. Yes, I know that Boris Johnson repeatedly has rejected vaccine passports. But then, of course, if we go back over the last couple of years, many things that he said he wouldn't do because he was essentially a libertarian, haha, in the end, he did do. And I do think that when it comes to people's jobs, when it comes to people's social lives, when it comes to lockdowns, if there are any again in the future, that right across the Western world, we are moving towards this two-tier society, the jabbed and the jab-nots. I have to say, myself, 
I'm not, you know, worried myself about the vaccine. I felt at my age, with my medical background, it made perfect sense to have the jab. So I'm not arguing it from a, from a perspective that I don't think people should have the jab. What I am saying is we're going much too far. The power of the state insisting, insisting that you have this vaccine and if you don't, you're about to become a second-class citizen. I have to say, I find the whole thing completely and utterly loathsome. I really do. Well, joining me to discuss all of this is Dr Peter Carter, independent health consultant, former chief executive of the Royal College of Nursing and vice president of the Institute of Customer Service. Peter, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. When, the, when Javid says that he's leaning towards mandatory jabs for those that work within the NHS, and that's because there are 100,000 people working in the NHS that have not yet been jabbed. When he says he's leaning towards, what he really means is he is going to introduce this, isn't he? Well, I think it's highly likely, and I'm not going to sit on the fence here, whilst I have had a lot of misgivings about how the COVID issue has been handled over the last 18 months. On this issue, I am four square behind what he's saying. I do believe that people working in the NHS should have the vaccine. Um, it will save lives, uh, save their lives, uh, prevent many people from becoming ill, but also they've got an ethical and a moral responsibility to their patients and to the public. And I feel that there should be compulsion. Now, what I'm hoping is that if the government could get its comms strategy right, uh, more and more of that 100,000 will see the benefit of it. Look, 75% of the people who are currently under the age of 50 and are in critical care, the common denominator is that they've not been vaccinated. Something like 20% of uh, pregnant women who are in intensive care units have not been vaccinated. This vaccine has been a game changer. It will save lives and it will stop people becoming ill. So I'm hoping that more and more people would see sense and we don't have to go for compulsion that people will voluntarily come forward. If well, not... I think, I mean, think come on, come on. They've had, you know, they've had many, many months of being told that they ought to do this, they should do this. Um, I, I, frankly, it's not about comm strategy. This is now about bullying, isn't it? I mean, this has happened in the care sector where they've now got it down to 30,000 people that haven't had the jab. But what about this point, Peter? A lot of people, some would argue too many people in the NHS, never, ever meet a patient, never meet a member of the public. They're working in offices, they're working in administration. And the second thing I'd ask you is whether you've been double vaccinated or not doesn't stop you being a carrier of this virus, does it? But that's the case uh, with, with most vaccines. Um, it's very rare that a vaccine will give 100% coverage to anyone. But I don't know what's gone on with the site. I do think it is about communication, actually, that people have had such mixed messages. Look, um, I was listening to Michelle uh, uh, on the previous programme and she was saying, no, no, you, you, you cannot do this. Look, if we had people in this country with Ebola, I can't see people saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to have the vaccination against uh, Ebola. It's, it's my civil liberties. It's my human rights. 
well, what about the human rights of people like us that have had it and want to get maximum protection? Right, so the logic... What we know... So then, so then the logic is, the logic of your argument doesn't extend to the NHS, it extends to the entirety of our society, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Look, ah, I mean, right. I, I, okay. I, 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 think, I think what we should be doing is a bit like in the 50s when there was polio and smallpox. Um, the, the vast majority of the, the population saw the benefit of those inoculations and there were huge queues. I mean, I was a young child at the time, and I remember being with my mum queuing up, and I suspect you were as well, Nigel, and we had it. And no one was thinking, look, there is no such thing as smallpox, or why would we want to be inoculated uh, against it? What we have to accept is COVID is going to be with us for as long as anybody cares to look ahead. Mm. I think we're going to have to get used to, like with the flu vaccine, having an annual jab. And I do think health workers and people like MPs should lead by example. They should have the vaccination and it will do a lot to ameliorate the spread. It will not prevent it entirely. And people that have got underlying health conditions are going to be actually on. But such a lot could be done if we could get blanket coverage. But if 10 to 15 percent, if 10 to 15 percent of the population say we will not take this jab on principle, you are happy with the creation of a two tier society because that is what it would be. I don't want to see a two-tier society, and I was as concerned as you were when I heard Jacinta Adhern yeah. very casually saying, oh, yeah, we're going to have a two-tier society. I don't want that. But what I do want is more and more people to get the message, and you need to invest more in going into workplaces, going into schools, explaining to people the benefits of this. But also, I mean, if you take the high incidence of young women who are pregnant, who tonight, as we're on this broadcast, they're in intensive care. And what they're saying, because I work in a number of hospitals and nurses and doctors say that people are saying, my golly, I wish I hadn't learned listened to the anti-vaxxers. People need to know. And those statistics are not getting through. And there's a lot of what I might call psychobabble being talked about this. And it's costing lives. Well, you say they're not getting through. I, I, I think, to be fair, uh, the, the, the pro-vaccination side of the argument is pretty powerful. Um, across all forms of media. I accept there are parts of the internet that do take a different view. Peter, thank you for joining us this evening. And that's the argument. You know, those that believe the vaccine is the right thing, and I'm not fighting that argument, uh, but it is this element of compulsion that I have to say I find loathsome. Now, the budget is coming out on Wednesday, and Rishi Sunak appears to have leaked almost all of it to the press over the course of the weekend and some more coming out today and no doubt more tomorrow. But one thing that I did notice is Sunak saying, we are committed to getting health services back on track and ensuring that no one is left waiting for vital tests or treatment, that no one is left waiting. Currently, the waiting list for NHS procedures is five point seven million people and rising every single week. And the Chancellor has the answer. Following the 12 billion that was announced for the NHS in September, he's now announced another 5.9 billion in this budget. So 12 billion, 5.9 billion, and that's going to solve everything. Interestingly, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, was somewhat more sceptical, because he couldn't say, if the NHS backlog would be cleared, 
within the next three years, that of course being the date until the next general election. Is just throwing money at this the answer? Is just putting money into what some see as the black hole of the unreformed NHS? Is that the answer? And frankly, even if we had a reformed, improved NHS that was giving us better bang for our buck, I don't think 5.9 billion would scratch the surface. I like the idea of 100 different diagnostic centres over the country. I like some of the things that the Chancellor has said he wants to do, and I like his ambition for what it will achieve. I just don't believe that it's going to. Well, joining me with a view on this is Jonathan Portes, Professor of Economics at King's College London and former Chief Economist at the Cabinet, under, of course, Gordon Brown. Jonathan, good evening. Good evening. So, 5.9 billion, 100 diagnostic centres around the country, and within three years, Bob's your uncle, there'll be no waiting list. Is the Chancellor being slightly over-optimistic, in your view? Um, yes, and I think the points you made are, are very reasonable. Uh, it is a significant amount of new investment, um, which is much needed and will certainly help. And the basic principle that one of the blockages here is test capacity is correct. On the other hand, it doesn't do anything to solve the probably the biggest blockage, the biggest problem with waiting lists, which is simply lack of staff, lack of having enough staff, enough staff, in the right places, in particular, of course, for uh, um, uh, to operate these centres, it'll be nurses, but also technicians, radiographers, and all the rest of it. Um, so, uh, and I think we have to remember that this is not a COVID problem. Um, of course, waiting lists have gone up a lot over the last eighteen months, but they have gone up a lot already. Yeah. The waiting lists in February twenty twenty were above four million. So this is a problem which is built up over a long time, a sustained period of underinvestment in capital, but more importantly, of underinvestment in staff. And it's going to take more, as you say, uh, quite a lot more than, uh, than the amounts announced today to deal with that. And do you get any sense that this government has a reforming bone in its body when it comes to NHS structures? They keep telling us that they do, but do you see any evidence of it? Um, I don't, uh, you know, um, to be fair, uh, I think the government uh, probably feels rather bitten by um, David Cameron and Andrew Mitchell's attempt to reform the NHS, um, which was frankly a bit of a fiasco um, and certainly didn't help. It was very unpopular um, with NHS staff. It essentially was rearranging the deck chairs. Um, so uh, there is a lot you could do to improve efficiency and productivity in the NHS. Whether that requires a sort of wholesale reorganization, I suspect that's probably the last thing that NHS staff or NHS managers want just at the moment. Yeah, I think I what mean, they'd actually like is a bit more money and a lot more staff. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. But I, I still somehow, Jonathan, I don't know what it is. I look at the bang for the buck uh, that they get in France and Germany, and they seem to have better outcomes um, in major areas. Well, like they stroke. do spend an awful lot of money in, in France, remember. And I mean, I think, remember, we can, I, I don't disagree with you that there's a lot of inefficiency in the NHS, as there is in health systems across the world. Um, and that things could be a lot better. But we do have a record on here. You know, what happened in the 2000s when Gordon Brown uh, um, and Tony Blair pumped a lot of money into the NHS? You're right. Quite a lot of it 
um, went in, increased salaries. Yeah, some of it, salaries. Of course, some of it, of course, was wasted. But waiting lists went down. People didn't have to wait four hours in A and E. They didn't. It, in that sense, it worked. The NHS in 2008-9 had low waiting lists. People didn't have to wait in A and E. Of course, it wasn't perfect. Of course, money was wasted. But it, you know, over the next ten years, as funding was proportionally reduced. Waiting lists soared. People have had to wait in A and E. Staffing pressures have got worse. You know, so of course you can always spend the money better, and that's true of everywhere in, of every government anywhere in the world. But it's also true to say that when the NHS was being properly funded, we did not have the problems we have now. Jonathan Porter, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. And yeah, I have to say, I, I, it, it's lovely to hear a chancellor being so optimistic. It just isn't, frankly, very realistic. Now, coming up in What the Farage, benefits uh, being paid, huge numbers of people receiving benefits, particularly from Romania and Bulgaria, vastly more um, than earlier on. Um, and we're wondering, are they still living in this country? Are we heading towards a two-tier society? The jabbed and the jab knots. And I'm getting some public reaction to my comments earlier. Paul on Twitter says, No, the vaccine is not causing a two-tiered society. The unvaccinated are. Ah, yes. But don't they have the right to make their own decisions? Twitter user says to me, It's the psychological method of increasing uptake without making the vax compulsory for all, which would cause anarchy. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's basically a series of threats, isn't it? Lee says to me on GB Views, some people will always refuse this vaccine. It's never going to get to the point where 100% of our society is vaccinated. No, and it's never going to get to the point either of zero COVID, which, of course, is what Jacinda Ardern has been aiming at in New Zealand. It's not a policy that can ever work. Alice says to me, you can still catch and transmit the virus if you are jabbed. So, yeah, well, look, Alice, this is the point I made earlier to Peter Carter, that, that within the NHS, lots of them work in offices, but half of them work in offices and never, ever see a member of the public or a patient. And the fact that you've been jabbed doesn't stop you from passing on the virus. Now, one of the themes that we've been covering consistently on this programme is the cost of living, inflationary pressures within the system. And one that people are beginning to really notice is, of course, the cost of fuel. Now, you might say, well, at least we're able to buy fuel, which a few weeks ago was rather difficult. But today, oil is trading at around about $85 a barrel. Uh, that is up... 55% so far this year. Um, and petrol hit 143 a litre yesterday on average, um, with diesel correspondingly a little bit higher. Again, massive percentage increases over the course of the year. And, of course, we have a budget coming up on Wednesday. Now, joining me now is Howard Cox, founder of the Fair Fuel UK campaign. Howard, good evening. Hello, Nigel. Now... You've been lobbying the, ch the Chancellor for a cut, a cut in fuel duty in the budget on Wednesday. Howard Cox, I put it to you, you are whistling in the wind. Uh, yeah, but you can't blame me for trying, Nigel. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've, been, I've been doing this for a long time, as you know, and um, what we're seeing at the moment is... Let, let's be honest about this. Um, 
in the last year, you mentioned the increase in oil. Uh, yeah. We're looking at more than the doubling in oil. We're looking at petrol going up 28p since last year. And the amount of VAT that has been gained by the increase in, of the cost of, of when you fill up is something it, – it's a windfall. It's a bonanza to uh, uh, Rishi Sunak of approaching £1 billion. Now, that's equivalent to a 3p cut in fuel duty. For every 1p cut in duty, it's about £300 million to the exchequer. So working on that basis, he's got room to cut by 3p, and that would balance the books beautifully for the drivers. And it's a horrible day for drivers today to see a statistic, and it's going to get higher. So the oil price will continue to rise in your view, Howard, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I'm talking to analysts about this. They're looking at $90 in November and potentially 100 at the end of the year, and that means pound fifty for petrol. But then there's the opportunistic profiteering, the perfect storm of uh, exchange rates, uh, weaker pound, the oil price ro rocketing. And of course, that wonderful scaremongering of the don't panic of the fuel uh, shortages we had. The combination of that has given completely free reign for the faceless fuel supply chain businesses to actually screw the motorists. It's as simple as that. And uh, they, in fact, there's also skewing the retailers as well. You can't blame the retailers because their margins are quite low. And just a quick thought, Howard, if I may, um... The congestion charge zone in London has extended today from central London to right out to the north and south circular. And I know there are people watching this, uh, perhaps in Birmingham and Manchester, thinking, what's this got to do with me? Well, I think this could be something that gets rolled out in other cities around the UK. Um, this new expanded zone, this is going to take in a lot of motorists every day, isn't it? Well, we're looking at it's 18 times the current size of the uh, uh, ultra low emission zone. We're looking at 300,000 more drivers that are actually not uh, have to pay. And there's something like 200,000 of those who weren't even aware this was happening. Um, it's the, the problem is, uh, Nigel, I mean, it's a scheme designed uh, to restrict low income families and small businesses. A lot of small businesses will go to the wall. They've got no choice but to use their vehicle, Nigel, as you fully know. And I just don't know what's it between the years of Sadiq uh, Khan. He is just absolutely thoughtless, cash-grabbing mayor, and all he's doing is to pay off his debt, and that's what it's about. But surely, Howard, in these new green times with which we all agree, we should all be on our bicycles. <laughs> well, no, I don't know what you expect me to say that. I'm six. No, don't years worry. I was, I was pulling your leg, Howard. Look, I'll be looking, I'll be looking forward to the budget on Wednesday, hoping that Rishi Sunak has heard your words and uses his VAT windfall to cut threepence, maybe even twopence, off fuel duty. But it isn't going to happen. But Howard Cox, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. Well, the benefit story is quite extraordinary. Now, what we've seen um, over the course of the last period during the pandemic uh, is now a total of 780,000 people in Britain who have come here from Bulgaria and Romania that are now receiving, you know, working benefits, tax credits, um, unemployment benefits, all sorts. In terms of unemployment, the numbers from those countries that were unemployed before the pandemic was 66,000. It's now 190,000. And when questioned... Government figures made it very, very clear that there are now 6.2 million EU nationals living in Britain who have access to benefits, tax credits and furlough during the pandemic. And when they're asked how many of these that are now claiming these benefits, 
are still living in the United Kingdom? Answer, there comes none. They simply don't know. But it's a pretty fair bet to say there are some that are claiming benefits that have gone back to their home countries. The whole thing is still a complete and utter mess. Now, a story, and this really is a what the farage. This incident happened in the English Channel yesterday. It has not been reported in any other media channel. Take a look at this picture. In the foreground, you can see one of the big inflatable ribs that was attempting to cross the channel. These are the new ribs that I've talked about. They're built for one journey only. There's a bit of plywood that is glued into the bottom of them. And I've been saying on this channel for months how very, very unsafe the new ribs are. <coughs> this one was several miles south of Cap Grisnay yesterday afternoon, but not quite across the line in British territorial waters. And as you can see, it fell to pieces. You can see clearly on the picture, there are people hanging on to what's left of the rib. There are others floating off in the water. There were 39 people. There were 39 people on that rib, and they were very lucky. Lucky that visibility was good. Lucky they were seen by a couple of passing ships uh, who sent their own lifeboats out to collect them. A helicopter was scrambled from, um, from, from Boulogne. Uh, the Boulogne equivalent of our lifeboats also came out to meet them. Six were airlifted to hospital, the other 33 taken back into Boulogne. All 39 survived. Uh, that was a complete and absolute miracle. And tonight, as I speak, the Harwich lifeboat is out. Yes, that's right. They're even now trying to come onto the East Coast. The Harwich lifeboat has been launched. There is a rib coming across the North Sea. And we think about 12 people are on board. They're not wearing life jackets. Conditions are pretty choppy. Uh, there was an attempt by a merchant vessel to take the people off the raft, but they couldn't do it. Conditions were too rough. I've no doubt that the Harwich lifeboat will do it. There will be, between now and Christmas, a very major incident where a lot of people, perhaps dozens at one time, get drowned. But the fact British media are not even covering this story anymore, I find absolutely, truly astonishing. The Prime Minister... Talk about what the Farage. The Prime Minister today did a press conference in the press room in Downing Street. And the press conference was for 8 to 12-year-olds. Don't ask me why. Um, he's doing a press conference for 8 to 12-year-olds. Um, but no doubt he won't get anybody questioning his green views because they've all been taught about this at school. Let's have a little look at the Prime Minister talking earlier on today. 97% of the mass of mammals on this planet is, is humans and our animals, yes. our domestic animals. Just 3% is left for the wild. So, so how sad. do we start to rebalance it? And I think we certainly could start by rewilding our yes. oceans. There's a lot of you space to do that. feed some of the human beings to the animals. Well, that would, wouldn't we? That would be... We could have a vote later and, and ask <laughs> if there's any candidate. What is he on about? 
I mean, I was told he'd given up drinking for Carrie's pregnancy. I'm not sure I believe it, listening to, listening to comments like that. He seems to have lost his marbles. And a new concept there introduced, not only are we going to rewild 30% of British agricultural land, we're now going to rewild the oceans. I don't know what any of it means, uh, but, but once again, we see the Prime Minister absolutely, completely in the grip of the Richmond Greens, those for whom a brand-new 12,000 heat pump doesn't really matter. Well, in a moment, I'm going to be joined by veteran Tory MP, Eurosceptic, challenger in the past for the leadership of the Conservative Party, Sir John Redwood. Well, I'm pleased to say that the GB News pub is now open. And joining me is Sir John Redwood, Conservative Member of Parliament for Wokingham. And, of course, somebody in the past who's been Secretary of State for Wales in the major government, challenger for the leadership of the Conservative Party, Eurosceptic to his fingertips. Sir John Redwood, welcome to Talking Pints. Very yes. good to see you. The thing that amazes me, I look at your CV... You know, you worked at Flemings, you worked at Rothschild, so you worked at, you know, very successful city institutions. You've got a very um, acute mind for matters financial. You've been in Parliament since 1987, so you are... I mean, I, I called you a veteran. I hope that's OK. Well, I'm still <laughs> learning the job. Every, every day I hope to get better, you know, Nigel. <laughs> well, good for you. And I, I did mean... go on to run industrial companies, which I found very rewarding and very challenging. Yeah. So a long career in business, long career in politics. You've held ministerial position. You were head of Mrs Thatcher's policy unit, going way back mm. to the, the days when the Conservatives were very concerned, and we will talk about that. Yeah, I was a young man then. <laughs> she still took my advice. Yeah. Yes. Well, you, well, good for you. You were as good as your last argument with Margaret. That was why she was a pleasure to work for. Were you scared of her? No, I wasn't scared of her at all. We, we had a very good working relationship. It was a different generation. Uh, but uh, I've worked out very, very early on that she was one of those rare politicians that you could speak truth to power as long as you did it privately and you were loyal around the back, which I always was. We had some really good arguments and sometimes I persuaded her. It was a very interesting That's relationship. Quite a feather in your cap, I would say. <laughs> but how is it, John, how is it that somebody with all your breadth of experience in finance, in business, in politics, in policy, how is it that we have... Frankly, we have had since 2019 some of the most inexperienced in terms of life and lowest grade cabinet ministers this country has ever seen. And you're languishing on the back benches. How does, how does this work? Well, I don't think they're low grade. And, and oh, you, they are. You need people on, you of all ages and experiences. And how, how well, do you get about, experience? Well, well people well, with, well, with no life experience. That's what I'm talking well, about. You, you must ask the bosses, sir. Yeah. Ask Rich Miss, daddies. Ask Oxbridge. Mrs May. Ask Boris. I don't know. I, I'm right, ready I, to serve, but I'm happy to serve in the way I do. But there's, there's, it's a great privilege to represent a constituency yes. and to have your voice... Uh, in Parliament so that you can get hold of ministers and you can argue with them over what they should do next. And that's what I do. Which you do very effectively and you blog and you're very active and all the things that you do. But, but John, you must think to yourself, you know, here we are with a big Conservative majority, with the freedom to start thinking, uh, 
<laughs> doing things just as in the eighties. Those things happened, and 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 and. and well, some... I, I was brought in to do some of the thinking in the eighties because we just won a general election yes. without much in the manifesto, and it was a fascinating thing to be able to do. And yes, I, I want Boris and his team to to think widely now. They they were not backed by COVID. Any government would have been, and they had to. I get that. They, they had to stop why everything and deal talents? with COVID. But now I think there's this huge opportunity. So that's why I blog. So why why are your why talents I'm, not? Why being I'm discussing used? with them things that I think they could do, and sometimes maybe they'll pick them up. Let's hope. John, know. it's ridiculous that they're not using you, isn't it? Well, I'm not going to comment on that, Nigel. It's not for me to say. It's not about me. It's about the country, no. and it's about well, I'm making sure use of, of this enormous trust. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of people sitting. You know, the country put a lot of trust in, in Boris and the Conservatives, mm -hmm. uh, and I think they were right to choose us because I think every other party wanted to thwart Brexit and didn't understand that the electorate were very serious about this and certainly didn't understand the opportunities. I think now I would say to the government, be bolder, be confident, understand that people actually voted for something different. They voted for change. And, and we've still got a civil service that's sort of trying to drag us back, trying to copy everything that Europe does and say that we're still really under European rules, even yeah. though we don't need to be. So I'm one of those voices saying, let's be bold, let's be imaginative, let's be sensible. But an independent country can achieve a lot more. Oh. And I think we've still got L-plates on for this independent country <laughs> well, business. I, you know. No, that's probably right. But I did notice over the weekend the Labour Party appear, appear to have embraced Brexit because they're advocating scrapping the 5% VAT. Yes, at last. Uh, like, yeah, they a tax it. they weren't yeah. allowed to change right. when they were in it. That's and, right. And, you know, the, the greenest government ever, which this government wishes to be, mm. still hasn't taken VAT off insulation and boiler controls and lots of green products. Now, why not? That was one of the things that you and I in the Brexit campaign said, this is a freedom we have. So we wanted to welcome the Greens on board. And we said, look, one of the things you want is people to buy more of these things. Yep. So why are we taxing them? Yep. Answer, because yep. the EU made us. Yep. So let's do that, please, Richard. Yep. No, I get all of that. But how is it, as somebody that you know, was part of that radical thinking back in the 80s, how does it feel to be part of a Conservative Party that is now clearly tax and spend, uh, that has gone for... Uh, state controls, maybe not as bad as New Zealand or some other countries, um, that has gone for this green agenda uh, in a way that really hits some of those on the lowest incomes and some of those running small businesses. John, it doesn't feel very conservative, does it? Well, I'm, I'm arguing now, as, as you may have seen, Nigel, that uh, one of the things we need to do is to get a stronger recovery, and you get that by lower taxes, not higher taxes. Now, I'm delighted when the Chancellor assures us all he's a lower tax Conservative. But, I say, yeah, bring it on, Rishi, you know, bring it on. It's like Boris calling himself a libertarian. It's not believable, any of it, is it? And so let's see which taxes we could cut. Because if we cut some of the tax rates, we would actually collect more revenue. Every time a Conservative government has had the courage to, to cut income tax, the amount of money collected has gone I up. completely understand that, and I do actively follow yeah. what you're pushing out there, yeah. um, and I find it very interesting. But they're not doing it, and my, point, my question to you is this doesn't feel like a... It doesn't feel Conservative. Well, that's why I live in hope, and I'm, I want to make sure more people agree with me, and if people do agree with me, write to your MP. And all my Conservative Campaign. colleagues, a lot of my Conservative yeah. colleagues in private say, you know, John, yeah, we, we like lower taxes. Well, I'm saying you can have them, and it won't be irresponsible to have them. Um, did you know, for example, I, I don't read it, read it on any of the normal media, that in the first six months of this year to September, mm. the Treasury has collected in £46 billion more in tax revenue 
than its forecast last March. Yeah, I know, phenomenal. Because we'd grown a bit faster than they thought we were going to. So doesn't that tell them something? It should tell the Chancellor that if you get faster growth, the money rolls in. Mm. You don't need to put the tax rates up, because that's all before they put up corporation tax and national insurance. My worry is that putting up national insurance, which I voted against, and putting up corporation tax is going to slow the growth, mm. and you might even end up with less money than you would have got if you'd gone for growth. And I'm not satisfied, Nigel. All the time, the economy is still smaller than it was just pre-pandemic. Now, of course, it had a big hit, and we understand why that happened, but I, I'm impatient to get us beyond where we were in February 2019. <laughs> way, so go for growth is what you've got to do. In a way, John, you've become a bit of a serial rebel, really, haven't you? I mean, you're there and you vote on things that you believe to be right. Um, I, I don't know whether the party whips have given up with you now, or, but they must be getting... Well, I don't want to be a serial rebel. But and, you are. And I give them the benefit of the doubt. But you are. Things. But you are. <laughs> but you are. Because I do believe only the Conservative Party can see us out of this. Yes, when I see what Labour and the Liberal Democrats are offering, I think, my goodness, thank goodness... Well, we I'm not sure anyone that. can tell what the difference would be. If, oh, well, there's if quite a bit of difference. Well, now, well, there isn't very much. They would, you know it. Labour would lock us up a lot more than this government's been doing. You're being very loyal to You're being very loyal to your party here. It's perfectly clear. You don't think Boris is particularly conservative, but he was elected for a purpose, yeah. and that was to end the agony that the country had been through for that nearly four-year period, and it was absolutely awful. What was it that, what was it in your career? I mean, 87, you get into Parliament, uh, just the year before the Single European Act had been signed, and I remember I was working in the city at the time, mm. and I had my qualms about it. I, 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 I wasn't... Well, I told Margaret Thatcher not to sign it. It was one of Did the you? rare occasions when she didn't like my advice, and she was under enormous pressure from the Foreign Office and many of the civil servants that so we had to sign this thing, and they told her it was a free market. I said, no, it's not a free market. It's a legislative grab. It's a power yeah. grab. Uh, and then I became single market minister later on, and I saw at close quarters just what a power grab it was and how insensitive it was, particularly to small business. It was anti-innovation, it was anti-different ways of doing yeah. things. Everything had to be standardised, and it had to be standardised around what a few big yeah. corporations yeah. Yeah. told the French and German governments they wanted. You know? How did you vote in the 75 referendum? Well, I voted no, of course. Did you? Because okay. I, yeah. I made the mistake of reading the Treaty of Rome. Oh, gosh. And <laughs> I was hearing all these politicians, Labour were in government, of course, Labour and some Conservative politicians, telling me it was a free market, and I said, no, it wasn't just a free market, it was always ever close to union. Yeah. And although they hadn't fleshed out all the details, it was quite clear they were going to take us on a massive journey. And I always thought, this is not a journey I, and probably a majority of the British people, want to go on, and it's certainly not a journey we're going to go on if we're lied to about it. And the Labour government in 75 said, oh, no, it's just a free market and we won't lose any sovereignty. Well, well of course we lost and sovereignty. he said the same thing. Yeah, well, Heath no, said the same Heath, thing. no, Heath was honest. Later, Heath, later he was honest. Heath actually said that we were going to lose sovereignty, but Labour in government had the referendum to try and deal with a conflict within their own party, and the main establishment Labour people, who had to take on one or two of their own cabinet ministers... Yeah. Uh, were saying no loss of sovereignty, and I never believed a word of it, because the Treaty of Rome was a journey to sacrifice. That was the sovereignty. irony, wasn't it? it was and that was why I told Margaret not to sign the Single European Act, because it was yeah. a sacrifice of vetoes and powers. And I even tried to compromise with her, and I said, given that they say a limited number of laws are necessary for the single market, and we need to have majority voting for those, define which ones they are, and then we get our veto back thereafter. And they wouldn't even do that. And then when she, when she left, in, in pretty sad circumstances, pretty thankless 
circumstances. John Major's first speech. I remember it. First speech. And John Major, who we all thought was a Thatcherite, said, we want, to, we want to be at the heart of Europe. Do you remember that? that yes, moment? I do. My heart's... <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it. You know, we were told this was the, the heir to Thatcher and... Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and, but clearly he wasn't. So in the end, in the end, it's the mid-1990s and Major... And, you know, there's a civil war going on. It's been going on through mastering, mm. but it never goes away. No. Never goes away. It's a fault line, isn't it? Well, a lot of us couldn't take Maastricht because it was yeah. a very clear yeah. sacrifice well, of much bigger powers than the single European Act sacrifice. Well, that was it for me with the Conservative Party. I was, I was done with it. I mean, I, and I couldn't I, believe that Conservative leaders or wannabe leaders would think sacrificing the pound was feasible. I know. Because I said to them, well, you must roll that out immediately. At least we got an opt-out from this thing. One good thing John Major did, yeah. which Labour wouldn't have done, was got an opt-out from the currency. Uh, but they wouldn't unequivocally say, we're never going to go into it. And I said, well, how can you still be anything like an independent country if you don't run your own currency? No, I mean, I mean, that, to me, was, was... And then I took the, the show around the country with others to keep the pound. No, I remember very well, and, 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 and it was a good thing that, 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 that a lot of people united. I mean, saving the pound was our Alamein, in a sense. It, yeah. it, it was a very important moment. And I always said that if, if we'd lost that, I'd have left politics. I saw no point in carrying on if you belonged to a country that didn't control its own money. I couldn't see, see that, but we won it, so it was a great triumph, so but, it was but, worth staying on. Taking you back a step. Yeah. So John Major is, you know... Clearly, joining ERM has been a catastrophe. Yeah. And that was really, I mean, you know, that was... And there's so few of us ministers against it. I was, I mean, I literally, from that moment on, I've never voted Conservative since. I, I mean, I may do again one day, you never know, but I've never voted Conservative. And I was a member of the party. Yeah, sure. You know, at the mm. time. But in the end, Major says, put up or shut up. Yeah. And up pops John Redwood. Yeah. And... I remember I was at Lords. It was I was at Lords. Do <laughs> you remember Lord's where you were? I do. <laughs> I was at Lords, looking forward yeah. to a proper day out, yeah. and I get this message that you know Redwood's standing. Yeah. And then this sort of slightly unfortunate photograph of your supporters, and I think Tony Marlowe had a jacket on for Henley because it was in June or whatever. Well, they decided to make fun of that, but they were all Conservative yeah. MPs. Yeah, I, I had, know. I had a simple choice. We invited any Conservative MP who wanted to come to come. I yeah. then turned up. I couldn't start my campaign by saying I don't like the look of these people. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it all looks... That would have been even worse. I know. I it all just looked... <laughs> and I, I spoke to Tony Marlowe about it. Well, there's Tony Marlowe and Theresa Gorman who attracted quite a lot of attention. Yeah, but, I mean, no, I, I was very grateful they at least had the courage yeah, to it, put up. You know? I mean, they were great people. They were great. They had yeah, guts. I know, they, I they know. Had, but it was all yeah. painted out. And it all looked a bit like... Well, if it hadn't been that, it had been something else. But I mean, then the major, major lot were very good at spinning against but, me. But then you see, John, I then went through the same thing. Yep. That, you know, I was a clown, yep. uh, UKIP was a circus, right. fruitcakes, mm. loonies, yeah, closet yeah, yeah. races. I mean, yeah. I've been through it yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. When you look back at that period, um, are you pleased that you stood against it? Oh, yes. Because I'll tell you why. Because I think it achieved something. And I think it persuaded John Major he had to offer a referendum before sacrificing the pound. Now, I didn't actually think that mattered at all, because I knew he was going to lose big time. But it made Blair match him. And I think that was terribly... That's how I would defend what I did. Um, didn't get me anywhere, but it wasn't really about ambition. It was, it was really about saving the pound. That was what the no, point well, of it was. No, no, no. It's, it's and I was thrilled that both yeah. major parties, including the one who was bound to win the general election, given what Tories were doing, uh, said they were going to have a referendum. And I think that was absolutely critical in the whole thing. Yeah. Economics, John. 
Quickly, yeah. are we headed for a period of stagflation? And we've discussed stagflation with, with the audience over the last few weeks. It, it, you know, it doesn't look pretty, does it? Well, we're certainly heading for a period of slower growth rates after the phenomenal growth rates of recovery, and we're in a temporary period of higher inflation. Uh, but I think we need to take actions, and I've been setting out some of those, lower taxes, dealing with supply-side yeah. problems, investment in the areas where we need more capacity to avoid stagflation. And I'm terribly keen that we invest a lot more in energy, because this is a country that was always rich in energy and produced all its own electric, electrical power yep. and had plenty of oil and gas and coal <coughs> that were allowed to so do nuclear? Uh, well, maybe, but I mean, nuclear takes Fracking. a long time and is quite expensive. I, I think we need to get more gas out, Yes. Um, and there are various ways of producing more gas. The, I mean, the immediate challenge is why not accept the shell investment in the Jackdaw field, which would link into the Shearwater platform that's already there. I mean, the kit's already there, the, the pipes go past the door. Well, we, and and well, no, why is it better to import gas Boris in an LNG carrier? I know, you Boris know. wants to import it. I mean, you couldn't invent some of this stuff. It's not that I'm being anti-green. <laughs> we are going to burn the gas anyway. We're not suddenly going to rip out all these gas pipes. So why not burn our own I gas? Know. And we've only I got know. half at the moment that comes from ourselves. And on electrical power, I don't really mind how they generate it, but it can't all be wind, because we just saw in September that when the wind doesn't blow, yeah. we go from 35% wind to 2% wind, and we've got a problem. So we need a, a range of things, whether it's biomass or nuclear yeah. or yeah. new gas or whatever. It was down to 4%, wasn't it? Uh, you know, the, 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 oh, it was under 2 at one point. Well, well that's what I thought. But I, I thought I thought, but, but viewers complained I'd got it really? wrong. But if you think it was 2, thank well, you. Well, I, I, I watch from time to time the, the, yeah. the real terms yeah. thing which they show I, how, how much are we burning, you know? John, what next? What next? Well, I mean, this is a great country and... It's, a, it's a, really a training programme to, to government to show how an independent nation has lots of exciting options when you're a great country like Britain and how we've got to learn again the, the decent habits of how to make our own decisions. You are, genuinely, our own you are genuinely excited by Brexit, aren't you? It's fantastic, but we need to use it, and we haven't used many of the things yet. <laughs> well, but, you know, in defence of Boris, he, he's, he's done Brexit, apart from Northern Ireland, yeah. which we've still got to sort out. Yeah. And he did the vaccines, and that was brilliant. Yeah. Um, they they did something different. I'm not sure the conventional system would have developed the vaccine. So we know we can do it now. So I say take confidence. And if you can wow. do it for vaccines, let's do it for a new energy policy, or whatever it is that we now need to do to well. be a more prosperous country. And if you want to level up, it's about having a great private sector. It's not just about a bit of public investment, though that can help. And it's about getting everybody on those personal journeys. So we need to make the opportunities available. I think it's got to be a much better environment for small businesses and for self-employment. And I think they need to look at the tax and regulations on that. So it's got to be easier for people to work for themselves. I agree. That was John Redwood on Talking Pines. The most enthusiastic I've ever seen him. Phenomenal. <laughs>the end of the show. Time is very short. Barrage the Farage. A few questions here. John asks me, do you think we will ever rejoin the EU? No. What does Redwood think? No. No, there we go. Do you think COP26 should be remote to save carbon footprint and money? There are 25,000 yes. delegates going, 100,000 protesters. John thinks, and I do as well. I've got time for one more quick one. Camilla on GB Views asks, the EU didn't believe we'd Brexit. Why don't they believe we won't invoke Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. 
because they think there's going to be a compromise, and I think there will be a compromise, don't you, John? Not sure. I think we've got to be very firm because we cannot accept the control of their court over anything. No. I, I fear this is one that... I, I'm not sure Boris worries as much about this, but I must say David Frost um, is terrific. Oh, one more I've got time for. Do you think supermarkets and energy companies ought to face a windfall tax in view of excess profits directly due to COVID? I don't like windfall taxes. No, right? no, no. We've got enough taxes. Got enough taxes. Back let's enterprise. Give, let's give people's incentives. We're finished. It's over. I'm back tomorrow. Coming up next, it's Colin Brazier. First, though, the weather. Very good evening to you. It's eight o'clock on Brazier tonight. Is COVID really destined to fall away? In the run-up to Christmas, I'll be speaking to the SAGE member whose analysis makes Plan B far less likely. Also, I'm joined by one of the most influential and satirical voices in America's culture wars, Mark Stein. And is the suit finished? Why the most famous name on Savile Row is hanging by a thread. All that's coming up. But first, a news update with Polly. Polly.